Hey, this is a Hakawati production. Today's guest is an Iraqi-Australian writer and photographer. His work has appeared in the New York Times, GQ, Vanity Fair, Vogue, Esquire, CNN, and Rolling Stone. He became the editor-in-chief of GQ Middle East in 2018 at the tender age of 28, when the publication launched in the Arab world. Please welcome to the show, Adam Baidawi. Hi, Adam. How are you today? Nadia, I'm great. And I'm sorry to have been late. Forgive me. Not at all. Not at all. So let's get started right away. GQ launched in the Middle East just a couple of years ago in 2018, just as magazines all over the world are shutting down. Does the world really need more magazines right now? I think the world definitely needs the right magazines right now. And I feel as though, I mean, I had a hunch before I moved to Dubai for the role, but I I definitely know for sure now that the Middle East needs platforms um, and magazines right now more than ever. You're right. There's not a lot of of voices um, when it comes to to media. There's not a lot, a great variety of voices. So what is GQ Middle East's like voice or its raison d'être, if I can put it that way? You take me back to my high school French classes. Um, I think one of the early missions we settled on um, that's remained true this, to this day is that we wanted to bring the world to the Middle East and the Middle East to the world. And I felt as though both parts of that mission were really vital. I think that so often when we are experiencing media in the Middle East, or even as Middle Easterners, a lot of that comes through a very Anglo perspective. And so it was really important to me that we were a magazine that presented the world through an Arab lens or through a Middle Eastern lens or a North African lens. And just as much, I recognize the fact that GQ is a global brand and wherever it exists, it's a pretty big platform in pop culture and the zeitgeist in fashion. And I wanted to make sure that we used our edition of Middle East as a platform for both emerging and established talents here because, like I said, there's there's not a whole lot of platforms for, for Arabs to climb on. Um, they have an international status the way GQ does. Right. But, you know, when I ask you the question about whether we need more magazines, I'm referring more to, like, the print version of magazines, obviously. The sales of print magazines have plummeted. I don't know if GQ is one of those magazines. Is it? How are the sales of GQ? <laughs> <laughs> our sales have been our sales have been steady since day dot. And what we found, I mean, I can I'd be really interested to to explain a little bit behind our thinking because yeah, launching a print magazine in 2018 is to anyone a fascinating business decision. And for us, I really wanted to focus in on the most underserved in terms of readership. And for me, it was just about crafting something for a very, very discerning person who was also open-minded, progressive, curious, intellectual, and maybe a little bit younger than readers of other magazines. And to make a print product desirable to someone under the age of like 25 is quite a mission these days. But we think we had a sweet spot there. We've seen that pretty consistently in terms of our sales and also our demand internationally for copies. Like I've been regularly very pleasantly surprised at the requests we get from not only places like everywhere from Egypt to Turkey to 
Algeria to Tunisia to Arabs um, who've grown up in the West who just want to experience GQ through an Arab lens. Um, so we've been pleased so far, and it's definitely a model that's made sense for us uh, to this day. So a lot of print magazines have kind of tried to segue onto digital you know, they've into digital, you know, most magazines have a website. Do you think that the audience that used to read magazines or that's reading the magazine also turns to the website or is it a different audience? I feel like people are getting their information in a different way online than they would from a magazine. You go to different sources, you search usually by the things that you're interested in, not necessarily by specific platforms. So is it the same audience? Yeah. Yeah. Ask any magazine editor, give them truth serum, and the quantity of people that are typing in the URL of their magazine and intending to go to their platform is is close to zero. It's a very, very small proportion. And for us, the way I like to think about it is that you don't need to be doing the same thing on both platforms and they don't serve the same purpose. When we sit down to read a magazine, we, we have extraordinarily different intentions than when we click on a link in bio or um, follow something on Facebook or Twitter or find something on Google. Like there's a completely different intention sets. One, you're actively seeking out information or information is presented to you. Two, you're making a deliberate, leisurely decision to say, I want to digest something and I want to do it slowly and more deliberately. Much the same way that there's like, you know, with some podcasts, I I, I listen to them while I'm doing the cooking or I'm working out. Others, I genuinely just wait till I have a moment of calm and I'll just really, you know, devour them. Maybe they're a bit more narrative-based. Maybe they're a bit more rich and less news-focused and timely. But, you know, it's, it's different platforms to different moments. And what we try to do is provide a channel or a platform for whatever mood um, our reader might be in. Okay. So you're a podcast fan. What are some of the podcasts that you listen to? <laughs> while you're cooking, I, while you're I working to, out. Yeah. Yeah. I have to admit, I, I did dive into yours and I really, really enjoyed it. I thought the conversations were very vibrant and so dynamic and interesting. I hope we can achieve that together today. And I didn't disappoint the listeners. Um, Und- I also, doubtfully. I, I would doubt that very much. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, I am also crazy about world affairs and just keeping abreast of things. So I, I love listening to The Daily from the New York Times. I quite like the Intercepts podcasts. Um, I really enjoy a pop culture website in the US called The Ringer, and they do really fun pop culture coverage and really good sports coverage as well. So I'm a pretty, I have a pretty varied media diet, I would say, and everything kind of serves its purpose. Oh, so you're into sports? Big time. <laughs> awesome. What sports do you like? Like, what do you follow? I mean, you're you're Australian, so you were, grew up in Australia. So what what do you like yeah. to? I grew up loving Australian football, um, and then I kind of fell hard for uh, the NBA and basketball uh, late in my teens, and I've actually low-key freaked out quite a few members of my team and my, my boss, my publisher, in the past few weeks because I've been getting up at about 4, 4.30 a.m. and um, watching the NBA playoffs here. So uh, I'd say the NBA is where my heart is at the moment. How would you describe, since you're, you know, at the head of a, you know, men's style magazine or lifestyle magazine, what is the quintessential Middle Eastern man of today? Like, how would you describe an Arab guy that's kind <laughs> of like the, the, the guy that's reading GQ? 
Middle East. Okay, that's a bit easier. The guy who's reading GQ Middle East. That's easier? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely easier than um, me trying to butcher um, or summarize or generalize it, such a big region. Um, yeah, I sensed look, your the, trepidation, <laughs> so I changed the question. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that so much. Um, no, look, what's what's really interesting is that more and more, particularly in the past year, I would say, I see GQ as a sensibility rather than a, a gendered experience, rather than being a pure men's magazine. The data that we have on it shows that there's not small proportion of women reading our magazine, and I think that's because it has such a strong sensibility. And I think that sensibility, particularly for GQ Middle East, is curious, fascinated by change, whether it's in their wardrobe, in the gadgets they use, changing in society, and wanting to be on the on the zeitgeist and understanding the zeitgeist. Um, and I'd say just open-minded. Fashion itself is so forward-thinking, forward-looking. It's all about what's next. And I think that that sensibility has flowed through to our journalism as well and the way we, the prism in which we view society. So that sense of progressiveness, of curiosity about what's next and open-mindedness to change is probably what defines the GQ reader here. That's so interesting because... First of all, I love reading GQ. So the fact that you're telling me that I'm not the only woman reading that enjoys it, that, that's good to know. <laughs> I thought it was a bit <laughs> odd, but I guess it isn't because you're right. It's not really gender specific, but it's what's funny also is kind of how I feel about my show. Everything that you've just described, it's it's called The Men's Room, kind of like Gentleman's Quarterly, but it, it it's more about... Right. Ideas and being progressive in, the, in a frame of mind um, that's not defined just by gender. So it's interesting. Uh, we have something in common, kind of. <laughs> so um, I agree. I yeah, agree. Yeah. So in your previous life, you were actually um, a different type of journalist, if I can use that word. And do you consider yourself a journalist now that you're not covering what we call, you know, hard news? It's funny, like, I've always struggled with, with labels. Um, and to be perfectly fair, um, in my 12 years in the industry, I've worn a lot of different hats. Like, I started off as a music journalist doing CD and, like, album reviews and live gig reviews. And then along the way, I, you know, was a copywriter. And then I worked a lot with various editions of GQ. I spent some time at British Esquire. And then I fell into hard, hard news with the New York Times and, and the, the time I spent with the Australia Bureau. So I don't know if I can even label myself. Like my bios are always butchered because I don't know, I don't know how, quite, how to quite put it. I am me and I definitely enjoy storytelling and I definitely tell story, enjoy um, storytelling that has a lot of rigor to it and a lot of detail to it. So maybe that's the best way of putting to it. Uh, maybe a, <laughs> a neurotic storyteller. Did you say neuro? I hope you said neurotic because I heard erotic and I know that's not what you said. <laughs> but Definitely I, neurotic. <laughs> but um, I think that that's so that's so true. I think storyteller is kind of the new term for what you and I do, and and a lot of people that I've talked to, uh, including uh, Ahmed Shahab Al Din, I know that he kind of transitioned into that, even though he kind of started out as a quote unquote journalist. So I think it's interesting mm. as content takes different media takes different forms and there's so many stories to be told 
and everything is news. But what, you know, I mean, a new collection from a designer is technically news, right? Because it's something new and timely. So it's it's interesting to kind of find this new term that a lot of people are using. I think I'm going to start calling myself that storyteller although some <laughs> some kids might think you're like <laughs> gonna tell them like you're ready to read them a bedtime story yeah exactly hmm uh-huh. <laughs> something that we all have to agree on on using it i think so gq is is a fashion magazine by definition i mean that's the first label that you might give it but you also cover things like travel and culture uh, for instance today i read a, a pretty interesting article on this egyptian series i read this on your website so this egyptian series on netflix called paranormal which is based on a sci-fi yeah. horror series of books written by an author called Ahmed Khaled Tafik, starting, uh, which he started in 1993, just to give a little bit of background info. And in that article, it talks about how people used to ask him, um, he's passed away now, why would Arab youth want to read this gothic horror stuff if their own lives are already steeped in pain, anxiety, and uncertainty? Because that's what a lot of Young people are living in many countries across the Middle East. And his answer was, the idea of reading horror is that you approach death without dying, which I thought was really kind of deep. And I thought that it really... So beautiful. It's beautiful, yeah. It also speaks to this whole idea that people in the Middle East have this kind of unique, intimate relationship with death and you know horror. In many countries, terrible things have happened. So you'd think that this kind of shapes cultures in a special way in everything that they do in their lives, from the way they dress to the way that they behave. Are there specific things about people in the East, in the Middle East, that make them unique in the way that they approach their lifestyle? Like anything that's off the top of your head? I just, I see such an industriousness to to people and it's impossible to generalize across everyone, but just an industriousness, an ability to to get things done Resilience is a word that's used probably a little bit too much about people from the Middle East and North Africa, but there's truth to every cliche. I think there's a robustness and an industriousness to the men and women of the region that I really, really admire. And to be honest, it's just the reason we exist and the reason we're doing what we're doing is because the region deserves to have a platform that celebrates its storytelling, that elevates its talents and that adds nuance to the discourse that is had in the Middle East about the Middle East and that the world has about the Middle East too. Like I'm an Iraqi that grew up in Australia. I I love Australia. I grew up there. It's great. But like so many other Western cultures, every piece of news and media about the Middle East that I experienced was about war or about wealth or about intolerance. And I don't need to tell you that the Middle East is much more than that. But in the media, there was no shade. There was no nuance. There was like, any positive story about the Middle East was always shrouded by Orientalist like, uh, tropes. And this is a region that's made up of so many cultures and communities and like half a billion people. And so one of the responsibilities we have as a media brand in the Middle East is to add depth to that discourse around the Middle East and North Africa. And the barometer is that The day I do an interview with a Western media outlet and I'm asked like, hey, Adam, why do you think we're seeing this explosion of Egyptian talent in Hollywood? Like what's happening with Rami Malek and Mina Masood and Rami Youssef? That's when I know I've done my job well. Or when someone asks me about a brand like Casablanca doing so well in the fashion scene, or when someone says, 
how come so many incredible female filmmakers are coming out of Lebanon, like Nadine Lavaki, or how come the Palestinian diaspora is like brimming with creative talents like uh, Sarah, Sarah Baba? Like the day I'm asked those questions instead of questions about war, wealth and intolerance is the day I've done my job. That's so true. I feel that same responsibility and and it's so true there's just been for you know for so long now there's this perception that's been created of the Arab world and it's just feels like now it's beginning to be kind of uh unshrouded and and you know most people many for example Americans might hear oh well Adam is an Iraqi and they have this preconceived idea of you but if they you know read GQ or heard you in this interview they'd be like oh That's nothing like what I would have imagined from, you know, an Iraqi guy. So so it's so important right. how the media presents uh, people and cultures. So really, that that's great that GQ is doing that. Um, and, and the way you, you describe it makes so much sense. So how do you make sure, as an editor-in-chief of GQ, that you don't fall into these traps of superficiality and repeating kind of... Because I've worked in the media industry for a few years, and, you know, you get all these press releases about new products and luxury brands and stuff. And part of your role as a publication is to kind of dance that dance of like sharing this news because, you know, your readers do care about what they're wearing and what's new. But how do you present it in a non-superficial way or justify it to yourself, who's obviously someone who has like this expectation of, of wanting to do meaningful work? How do you do that? It's it's a challenge, but at the end of the day, my biggest the the biggest and most important part of my role is curation. Um, and there is no doubt someone picks up GQ to see beautiful things, beautifully presented, uh, and covetable things, and that's great. And we'll have that in every single issue. But people will also pick up GQ to learn about a new talent, to learn about a new film, to learn about a change in society, to learn about a new gadget. And to us, it's just about, you know, finding that right mix, hitting that sweet spot month after month and doing it with rhythm and to remain curious. And, you know, there's a couple of conventions that we threw out the window, both at the start and as the, as the years have gone by, like we have a seven or nine page shoot that opens every single issue of the magazine. And it's kind of like a service issue. It's there to be a how-to about some topic in fashion, how to break black tie conventions, how to get more texture in your wardrobe, whatever. And to me, it's really important that we open each issue with a fashion statement, you know? We just really want to give the reader options and be educating our readers about style um, on the pages. But... After a while, and this, the, two big, the two questions we ask ourselves over and over again is, why do we do that? And why shouldn't we do that? And why and why not are probably the two biggest and most important questions we ask ourselves at GQ. And so when it came to that opening shoot that we do every month, I'm like, well, hold on, does this necessarily have to be on a model? Why are we doing this on a model month after month? Yeah, like sometimes it makes sense and the clothes look great, but what happens if we put those clothes on a talent? And we really show context around how to wear something in personal style. And that that shoot becomes not just about, you know, the building blocks of your personal style, but it also becomes a little profile on this person. And that's something we do every issue or two. Um, and that's a, it's a minor tweak that has a big impact. And it just gives even more of our space, more of our pages to talented, interesting people that have great stories to tell. Well, everyone who knows me knows I love beautiful things too, but... How important do you think style really is? It's tremendously important. Um, 
I think that whether you're talking about just the art and beauty that what, of the craftsmanship of fashion, of menswear, that's important to me and that's important to our, a lot of our readers. But also, you know, personal style, the way we choose to present ourselves as we move through the world, the way we express ourselves affects our day-to-day lives, whether we think it's important or not. I don't need to tell, I'm sure there'll be listeners out there who will agree with me, but the experience um, of those of us who have been fortunate enough to be able to work from home has been like, I'm not going to really get dressed up every day. Right. And I would be lying if I said that it didn't affect my psyche to rock up to quote unquote work in sweats as compared to, you know, sometimes I might wear some tailored trousers or shirts or even a suit. Like it affects your psyche. It's why they put prisoners in uniforms. It's why, you know, most conservative parts of the business world require you to wear a suit, shirt and tie to work if you're a man. You know, personal style has such a huge impact on our day-to-day lives, whether we acknowledge that or not. And I really care about helping our readers feel themselves, feel like the best version of themselves and feel like they're presenting the truest versions of themselves as they move through society. But I feel like with COVID and how, you know, everyone's working from home and social occasions are like non-existent, I feel like we're not having this opportunity to kind of express our style in the same way that that we used to. And so in some way, it's becoming less important and less relevant. And I wonder if you feel that as a magazine that that it's like, yeah, well, no one's really getting dressed. Like, is, does it become more of an aspirational thing at this point? Like, and how long is this going to go on? We don't know. So so it may indeed affect the fashion industry in that sense. Oh, there's no doubt that fashion publishing. I mean, it's hard to name an industry that hasn't been affected negatively by this, except maybe e-commerce. And podcasting. Um, And podcasting, (laughs) bless you. Um, No, but like, I mean, I do think there's going to be two camps that come out of this. There's going to be people who have been yearning for a return to glamour, a return to elegance, a a return to feeling like the best versions of themselves in terms of how we present ourselves. And just as much there's going to be there's going to be people who are like I'm not ready to let go of that comfort so you better show me how to look pulled together and extremely cozy and comfortable at the same time and you only need to look at the success of brands in the, like like entire world and I can't tell you how many brands have popped up in the past 6 months in the UAE particularly spruiking like luxe sweats and stuff that's comfortable but still helps you feel pulled together to show that like, you know, the industry will always adapt and people will always need to to have some kind of curation to their style, at least a GQ reader. I think you make great points because you're right, that whole athleisure, you know, style is booming. And as you said, I think there's going to be like a huge uh, resurgence or renaissance of glamour once this kind of passes. People will be so excited to... Uh, dress up, probably. So as a publication in the Middle East, GQ operates obviously all around the world. Are there more uh, restrictions for you in what you can cover, the stories you can tell? How restrictive is it to operate in this region? Well, it doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to writing for the New York Times in Australia, for sure. But, you know, I had to learn to navigate the media environment here. I I hadn't worked in the media industry in the Middle East before I took this role. And, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, watch out for this, oh, watch out for that. And there was a lot of anxiety around it and paranoia about it as well. And 
what I've found, and this is just me speaking, speaking in my personal experience, is that what's much more crucial than unpacking that right now is to unpack why we, why maybe some of us journalists feel, some of us storytellers feel, <laughs> that you know we have to represent only a specific type of Middle Eastern value. You know what I mean? Like there's this idea and it exists much more in the Western world than it does here or with Westerners working here than it does with Middle Easterners working here. But I think there's this mistaken idea that there's a homogenous, agreed upon Middle Eastern sensibility and Middle Eastern viewpoint and that straying outside of that is a huge mistake that's going to offend hundreds of thousands or millions of people and that's just not true. There's one thing I've enjoyed as much as anything in the past few years doing this role. It's just learning about the incredible diversity of viewpoints, perspectives, and sensibilities that exist in the Middle East. And that, by the way, exists wholly within the realms of the law and exists in a way that is respected by their peers who might view things differently. And so I think that our first job and my focus is to just show a diversity of opinion, a diversity of thinking. And I would like to think that if even our cruelest opponents were to pick up an issue of GQ Middle East, even they would admit that we are showing diversity in our magazine, both in the way the talent that we choose to feature and in the viewpoints we choose to cover. It's so great to hear you say that. Because I'll admit, even I fall prey to this kind of ideology that there's, you know, uh, a most common kind of type of person or, or you know, in the Middle East um, or lifestyle or and that, you know, for example, in Dubai, where you're based, there are so many different cultures, people from all over the world. But you still get the sense that there's like a prevailing, you know, genre of thinking and that it's not really diverse. Like, is there... Is there anything like, are there alternative movements like you would have in other cities, for example, uh, like in, you know, if you go to London or New York, you always have these kind of underground movements that often end up being like the next big thing, right? And a lot of the media uh, and publications and a good editor would always be on the lookout for like these kids that are coming up with these great new ideas and they're kind of underground. Do you have that in Dubai? Hell yeah. Um, in fact, I would say that our connection with subculture here um, has been one of the crucial factors in our success. Again, coming in, I was like, okay, so is Dubai going to be this plasticky, over-retouched, forgive me, like even vapid place? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. You look at the diversity in culture, where, where, where there follows a diversity of people, there's going to be a diversity in creativeness and, and subcultures and niche. And if you take a look at what happens at Seoul DXB every year, that helps to unearth it a little bit. And if you look at like the talent we are so blessed to be able to work with, whether it's the amazing uh, and for the most part, extraordinarily young and emerging talents that I'm, I have on my team, but also the, the visual talents we work with, Prada Anzulus, um, Sheb Moha, Jindi, like there is a wave of insanely talented young creatives here who are shaping pop culture in this society and therefore, I argue, are also reshaping society 
And it would be a failure of me and a failure of GQ not to recognize those people who are reshaping the zeitgeist here, even if it's in small ways, even if it's in humble ways. Um, and actually our next issue is a massive focus on that, our November issue. Um, so I encourage you to check that out when it does drop. Definitely, definitely will. So we talked a bit about how the industry is kind of struggling as a whole, the print industry, the magazine industry as a whole, but it seems like there's almost a need for it in the Middle East, as you as you kind of explained. Would you say then that it's still an industry that people should want to get into? Is it growing in any way? Are there places for up-and-coming writers and photographers and art directors in the publishing industry? In the Middle East? Yeah, in the Middle East. Um, and, and do you have any tips for anyone that would want to pursue that career? Number one, yes. If you are listening to this and you are young and um, you are Middle Eastern, North African, whatever, and you have a curiosity about the industry, or you might even have a love for magazines and media products, I urge you to go into it because this region desperately needs Arab voices telling Arab stories, okay? And if this next generation doesn't feel empowered enough to step onto that platform and to own it and to use it, it'll be occupied by others. It's going to be occupied by Anglo perspectives. It's going to be occupied by someone other than you. So, yes, we very, very much need those people. And we already agree that those stories are undertold. The formula to getting into the publishing industry successfully is twofold. It's a whole lot of grit and persistence and the ability to be a charmer, Um, to push in a charming way, to follow up, to reach out, to network. That's number one. And number two, it's about just devoting yourself wholeheartedly to your craft. Um, and that really means, like, if you want to go and intern at Vogue or here or GQ or wherever, it means doing your study. It means understanding that magazine inside out. If you want to be a writer, it's about studying the style of writing. It's about, you know, publishing your own pieces independently you want to be a photographer, it's about not only being an obsessive of what's out there, but also mastering your craft, your craft, copy your heroes if you want to, and then go off in your own direction. But technique matters and training matters. And if you combine persistence and insistence on some occasions with a commitment to honing your craft, you will succeed. Well, so inspiring you are and such great tips. Thank you so much. And also, you're so well-spoken and wise for such a young guy. I just want to say that. And I'm I'm so glad we got a chance to talk today. Oh, that's really kind of you. I'm, I'm not feeling so young at the moment after the past few months of, <laughs> of the grind, but it's very, very kind of you to say. And um, I'm so grateful that you could invite me on. And I just love what you're doing. And please, more of the same. Oh, thank you so much. Like you just made my week. Maybe my month or my even pleasure. my year. <laughs> All right, Adam. <laughs> we'll take the wins we can get. Yes, okay. definitely. You, so you two much, keep Nadia. up the great work and I'll definitely check out the next issue. I can't wait to read it. I hope so. Thank you so much, Nadia. Take care. That's all for today, my friends. Thank you so much for choosing this episode of The Men's Room today. You could have been listening to one of Joe Rogan's epic podcasts or Dr. Sandrine's sex show on Hakawadi or some great music, but no. You're here with us. Excellent choice. See you next time.